This is a Clark University podcast. Things that we are taking for granted as rights, protections, privileges, freedoms, some of those are not as on parchment as we might want to believe. I don't think anybody wants to outright say the purpose of the Constitution was to limit who could participate in the conversation. And by that conversation, I just mean the drama that is the development of America as a country. What we're experiencing now, which is kind of interesting in a historical perspective, is we're experiencing the flip side of what two generations ago experienced under the Warren court in the 50s. You know, they started to take various cases and expand rights in a more, quote-unquote, progressive way. If that's the case, especially with the way that judicial review and the way that the American judicial decision has developed over time, means that it's going to fall in the hands of nine individuals. Jonathan Hack is the Director of Content and Strategy for the Justice, Health, and Democracy Impact Initiative at Harvard University. If you've been listening to Challenge Change for a while, you may recognize his voice. Last June, Jonathan helped us understand the judicial decision-making that goes into cases like Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the case that reversed Roe v. Wade. Jonathan graduated from Clark in 2009 and has a Ph.D. in political science from the George Washington University focused on American politics, specifically judicial behavior and decision-making. Nearly a year out from that divisive Dobbs decision, Jonathan is giving us a quick but thorough lesson on cases before the Supreme Court this session. Dobbs did a lot to the legal landscape. I think it did a lot of harm in terms of taking away a long-standing understanding of fundamental rights that exist in the Constitution, or at least are drawn out from the Constitution. Those being the rights to an abortion as established in Roe, and then reaffirmed to some extent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. On the one hand, it did a ton of harm to take a right that had come to be seen as a fundamental right, pulling that out of society and really like stomping that one out. The question is, what is the role of the Supreme Court? And should the court be making the decisions that it's making? We kind of have defaulted as a society over the course of our years under the U.S. Constitution to viewing the court as that final arbiter. As the traditional forms of lawmaking have made it harder and harder to see bills become law, as the politics have moved more and more divisive, as we've seen less and less of a willingness on the part of lawmakers to step up and legislate, by default, things have wound up at the court. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. Nearly a year out from that divisive Dobbs decision, Jonathan is giving us a quick but thorough lesson on cases before the Supreme Court this session. We want to note that views expressed in this episode are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the president and fellows of Harvard. Let's start with the two cases regarding President Joe Biden's student loan relief plan. There's Biden v. Nebraska and Department of Education v. Brown. This is probably a hot case on a lot of people's minds, especially those who hold student loans. So these are, these are two cases that are basically asking the same series of questions, right? Asking the question around student loan forgiveness and whether or not the president has overstepped his power under the HEROES Act to actually forgive student debt. 
So the first one, Biden versus Nebraska, right, is, is a challenge by Nebraska and five other states that want to block the $400 million program from going into effect. Their general claim is they're citing adverse effects on their state budgets and their, their ability to meet certain other requirements within their state. They also are claiming generally that the Biden administration lacks a clear grant of power to do this. The second one comes from borrowers who were excluded from the forgiveness program, so they actually don't qualify for the forgiveness program. Jonathan finds the student loan cases both interesting and mundane. I find this an interesting case because it has huge ramifications for society overall, whether you hold student debt or not, student loan debt or not. It really has implications for us to think about what it means to take out loans for education. But also from a legal perspective, I have found this to be a bit of a mundane case. If you listen to oral arguments, most of the conversation was centering around whether or not this case could have actually ever be brought in the federal system, whether or not the court even has standing to hear this case, which I think is a prudent question. I mean, like standing is an important doctrine within the federal system, within the American judicial system, and whether or not a case can come. So on some level, I think it would be prudent for them to go in the direction of saying, well, you know, there is very tenuous standing for the plaintiffs who have brought this case. However, there are the ramifications of, well, if they do go the direction of taking this case and then deciding it on something other than standing grounds, that opens the door to bigger questions of, well, what is the purpose of standing? Does standing become this wishy-washy concept? The court has never really done a very good job of articulating standing. But in this case, if they choose to go that direction, it opens up the door for cases that maybe in the past or could come before the court in a way that in might not be the most prudent and the most legally sound. The case Gonzalez v. Google asks whether Google's use of an algorithm to push content means the platform is no longer a neutral party. Twitter is also roped into the case. Gonzalez versus Google, which is also consolidated with the Twitter case versus Tamane. So those two cases came to the Supreme Court and they're both involving a similar question. The question being Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. An individual chooses to put up a YouTube video or somebody else chooses to put up something on Facebook or Twitter or something like that, right? It could incite, it could be problematic, it might offend sensibilities, but the idea behind the Communication Decency Act was internet companies are in some sense providing a neutral platform and they should not be held responsible for the content being placed there by others. In the Gonzalez case, Gonzalez is actually suing Google after his daughter's death in 2015, I believe, from an ISIS terrorist attack. The petitioners are claiming that Google has lost its immunity under Section 230 after these ISIL or ISIS members were able to use Google's recommendation algorithm to recruit terrorists on predominantly YouTube, but on other Google platforms. The question here is, is Google actually a neutral party in this case? The case 303 Creative LLC v. Ellenis presents the court with a question. Do First Amendment freedoms protect a person if they don't want to do something on behalf of others? This has to do with a Colorado website designer. As good business entrepreneurs want, they want to expand their business, so she wants to move into wedding space, but claims that she won't design websites for same-sex marriages, same-sex ceremonies, because it conflicts with her, her religious beliefs. 
Her position, her religious convictions, um, seem to stand in conflict with the state's public accommodation law, the Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act. So this is coming before the court as asking the bigger question. Do First Amendment protections, free exercise of religion, protect an individual if they don't want to go ahead and do something on behalf of others? The court has never really articulated a reason why First Amendment rights to discriminate on the basis of race should be treated differently than religion. First Amendment makes it abundantly clear about the free exercise thereof of religion. But then the question becomes, right, if you're opening the door that this is one thing that's protected, does that conflict with maybe aspects of the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause? And does this then put race into a different category than religion? The court has yet to fully address that question. Justice Kagan brought that up in previous proceedings, but it's just not something that the court has ever actively engaged with. When you have a First Amendment protection that makes it abundantly clear that you have the free exercise of religion, that coupled with the Establishment Clause, if you want to read it a particular way, you can see how that would provide an individual with protection. Because one could imagine a society that really was envisioning that free exercise meant that you can establish your church, your synagogue, your mosque, whatever your holy site looks like, and you have the right to come and go and exercise as you see fit. No one can tell you which kind of rug that you bow down on. Nobody can tell you what kind of cross to have at the front of your church. No one can tell you really how your church has to look outside of, you know, safety and zoning laws. That brings us back to a fundamental question about the intent not what is the redounding effects of how you want to take the understanding of free exercise of religion, but like if you want to play the game of what historically was understood, which is a direction that this court has chosen to go for a variety of its decisions, Dobbs being the first one that really gave us insight into that, that opens the question of what, is, what does free exercise mean? And do these string of First Amendment cases that we've seen Hobby Lobby being an example that comes straight to my mind of expanding protections under under the First Amendment's religious clauses. If that's the direction you want to go, I am not entirely convinced that that's founded in the tradition and that's founded in the intent behind the drafting of that amendment. All Americans have five freedoms, speech, religion, press, assembly, and petition. These rights are enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution, but with the Supreme Court comes judicial interpretation. At the very least, by highlighting these cases and, and engaging with them, it brings to the fore some of the problems or issues that we've never really resolved as a country. And maybe we have the opportunity to say, you know what, there's a path for us to move forward. It's just a reminder that we have more work to do as a nation. To learn more about political science at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash political-science. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>